Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today I have John Bedwani, CEO of the Database Department, as my guest. John, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Life's treating me with uncommon kindness. Well, that's what it's all about. Yourself? Always good. Excellent. So, John, could you give the listeners a quick one minute to 90 second summary of your career so far and how you ended up where you are? Okay, 60 seconds. All right, 35 years experience in business across 30 countries, 38 years in martial arts, started my career in sales, went into an ERP startup, grew internationally across 15 countries, eventually sold to IBS, moved to IBM, ran their SMB market across Asia, which is a $5 billion business back then. 14 years ago, I realized that there's too many bits that are broken in sales and marketing. So I set aside a big white paper and started drawing what all the problems were, why aren't people aren't addressing them. And out of that came this magnificent business called the Database Department with a methodology which we called Authentic Relationship Management, the science of building relationships with people that are not yet ready to buy. So when they're ready, they trust us. And from that, there are many, many benefits. Excellent. I want to go into the ARM piece in a bit more detail, but before I do, what are the four most common questions that clients ask you when they invite you in to help them? Sales is probably the biggest question or the biggest category they ask questions about. Traditional sales model in the B2B space is fundamentally outdated. When you look at the metrics, how do we increase selling time? 25% of the time salespeople spend is just on selling. The rest is on not selling. So they ask us, how do we actually double the selling time? They ask us questions about how do we cover the entire market? We give guys a territory or girls a territory. They only generally cover 20% of the territory. So we're asked, how do we help them cover the remainder of the market? Conversion ratios, one to three, one in five, it's a failed science. How do we fix that? How do we close more deals in less time? So they're the big questions that are asked from a sales perspective and the list goes on from there. Okay, so tell me this. What are the top three, four questions that they should be asking that they're not? I think the biggest question is why are we allowing our salespeople to spend their time looking for their own opportunities? Because while they're doing that, they're not selling. (laughs) So that's really the big one. And if you look at any seasoned sales leader, they want their sales guys to get out there and find their own opportunities and hunt for them and then they close them. What are we? Are we eight people? So we need to find a better way to nurture non-relationships, to make them relationships before we let the sellers in. So I think it's one of the big questions they should ask. The second question they should ask is, why aren't we building relationships with people before they're ready to buy? I mean, it's ridiculous. If you have money, I'm all over you. If you don't have money, I don't want to know you. You know, And if you don't build trust before the transaction, you're in a displacement situation. And when you're in a displacement situation, you lose more than you win. And I think the last one, Marcus, is... Um, When the sellers leave, why are we allowing them to take the relationships with them? The relationship should be as an asset to the company that funds the sellers when they're working for them. So I think they're the big three things that we really need to uh, be pushing to the marketplace to change the industry. Okay, all three nicely contentious. So I think we can do a deep dive into all of this. I have a view that salespeople need to be capable of hunting for their own opportunities and when the organizational structure is sufficiently robust and large enough, then yes, absolutely. It does make far more sense to have them out there in front of customers bringing home prey. The challenge is that transition stage. 
So how quickly in the life cycle of a business do you believe that you should be transitioning away from hunter and killer to just plain old psychopath? I say immediately. I say immediately. Okay. Here's why. The reason why sellers in small organizations, like but, but, you know, sellers in larger organizations are always also finding their own opportunities. But the reason why they're doing the small organizations is they believe they can't afford a model that allows them to actually nurture relationships till they're ready to buy it. So there, there are models out there. I just ask a simple question, Marcus. If you have a salesman, would you prefer him to be looking for opportunities or closing opportunities? And the answer cannot be both, because if they're doing both, then you're reducing the time that it takes to close. So it's not a true question. The answer is I'd prefer my sellers to be closing opportunities. So if we could find models where we're giving them enough pipeline with trusted relationships for them to close those opportunities and win more than they lose, would you be a happy man? The answer is I would be. And that's what it's all about. Okay. So I'll come back to that in a minute, but let's go into the trusted relationships piece. There's a shitty statistic that floats around the internet that 63% of the buying decision or 57% of the buying decision has already been made by the time they invite in the salesperson. And what that tells me is your salespeople are crap. The idea that you're being invited in at that late stage suggests to me that your salespeople have absolutely, or your business has failed miserably to do their job, which is to get in early and to establish value and build trust. Because I think in sales, the two main currencies are trust and influence. And when you go into the channel, it's even more so because you have no direct authority or power over your sales force. So what are the things that you suggest companies invest in in order to build those trusted relationships with decision makers before they're ready to buy? Very good. So let's just touch on the digital for a moment, right? And I actually wrote a, quite a lengthy paper on how digital marketing is not really building pipeline in the enterprise space. Okay, so it's all about eyeball experience, if you like, or hard experience or customer experience. Now, when people are on the internet researching, who are these people? And in the B2B space, they're generally influencers. They're not the decision makers. Decision makers are making decisions and they're out there doing stuff. The research and influencers are all over the internet. So if you're educating those guys, it's paramount, it's important. But at the same time, we need to be educating the decision makers, through some type of respectful concierge type program, we have senior consultants gaining permission to educate these people that are not yet ready, taking the digital analytics from all the eyeballs that are in the marketplace, and when we find that there are people in the companies that we've decided we want to build relationships with, that we're already talking to the C-level at, at a quarterly basis, whatever, when we find their, their activities are increasing, we triangulate and we bring in those conversations a bit earlier with the decision makers and we basically present to them that I know that you're doing this and that now and we've been talking to you about whatever it is we're talking to you about. What we'd like to do is we'd like to come and help you with the buying cycle from this moment on. So what happens is the digital has a, 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 a need in the marketplace but we need some type of concierge program with senior consultants for those not yet ready so that we're basically understanding their requirements, gaining permission to educate them, so that when they are ready, 
They, they see that you invested in them, you understand them, and you can now consult to them to close a sale rather than sell to them. On that note, I mean, one of the things that I teach my clients to do is to invest peer-to-peer contact. So CEO to CEO, marketing director to marketing director, legal to legal. In terms of building trusted relationships before they're ready to purchase, how are you working with your clients to create that type of engagement? That's a very, very good question. And most people don't think about that. Okay. So there's a couple of things here, Marcus. The first thing is you need to have the peer-to-peer insights for you to be authentic. Okay. So how do you do that? If, if you look at a great salesman, and I imagine you you are one and you were one in your, in your heyday, they were able to build some very strong authentic relationships directly with their markets. So whether it was 10 people, 20 people, 30 people, and you make your number. So you had the intel of what other CEOs or other CFOs, whatever C-level people were thinking about in aggregate based on your little territory. And you're using that intel, you were sharing it with others that you were trying to close business with. So you did it inherently in a small scale. But as we start to grow the scale of this model, what we do is we have a, a coverage model where every quarter we're communicating with the marketplace on behalf of our clients we work with most of the global IT brands. And as we ask questions and understand the requirements, we aggregate those end answers by industry, by job function. So as we go from wave to wave, we become the concierge of peer-to-peer benchmarking and we share the benchmarking with the industry by line of business. And how it basically works is, hey, Marcus, since I spoke to you last, we spoke to 40 other channel uh, consultants that help organizations grow their business through channels and through go-to-market. And here's how they're thinking about the problems that they have. Have you got the same problems? What are they thinking about? Because we're all emotionally wired to compete. So they're giving permission to tell them about what their peers are doing that's superior to them. And what happens when you have that magical moment? They give you permission to educate. You become a thought leader and you're sharing honest information that helps the industry and helps them. And, of course, what happens, you start to create demand directly when you create demand directly, you put your reps as a consulting engagement and the competitors are now on a displacement strategy rather than the reverse. So that's how it works. Interesting. I interviewed Anthony Anarino about five, four or five months ago and he has a wonderful strategy along those lines as well, which is that you do your research and you connect with the C-suite or with key influencers within your prospect accounts. Yeah. And you say... Just been doing some research over the last year, identifying trends that are likely to be impacting your business over the next 12 to 18 months. I'd like to come in to share it with you. That's a lovely little angle. And speaking to Jack Shamas, who is the guy who essentially helps people sell into the C-suite, and he spent 22 years on the boards of Pan Am, Standard & Poor's, McGraw-Hill, Charles Schwab, as CFO, Chief Operating Officer. And he saw his role in the C-suite as being a talent spotter. And he really made a very interesting point that when he was meeting a salesperson, he was the one who was more nervous because he's carrying a $3 billion P&L or $5 billion P&L. And he needs answers to questions he hasn't even asked yet. And it's really important that as a salesperson, you are not just somebody who shows up and throws up quotes and hopes, sells and runs which is what most order takers do, which explains why you've got such 
awful conversion rates and long, painful sales cycles. You've got about two minutes before that C-suite executive throws you out. And if you haven't caught their attention in that time by delivering insight, either directly or through a really good strategic question, then chances are you have a very uh, short shelf life. And the stat on this, I bandied it around a lot recently because it is so depressing, is 83% of first meetings do not result in a second meeting. KPMG recently stated that in their research, only six minutes in the hour were deemed valuable or insightful on behalf of the buyer when a salesperson was in front of them. Dave Brock talks about the average time available for selling being 12 to 21%. And when you multiply that against the time where salespeople are highly productive, which is 25 to 35%, that means you have a three to seven and a quarter percent of a full-time salesperson's time actually spent in front of the customer being highly productive, which explains the difference between A players and everybody else. An A player could be 9, 12, 25 times more valuable than even a B player, and then hundreds of times more valuable than C players. So my question here is this. In terms of authentic relationship management, how does that manifest itself in their daily habits? Very good question. So at the end of the day, let's describe what authenticity means. It's basically transparency of intent, okay? The first thing you've got to do is you've got to make a very, very, very ruthless decision. Do I even want to target that organization? And that's a big deselection discussion that needs to be had. i got to tell you, in all the business I've been on and been with and, and consulted to, the amount of segmentation work that's done is almost zero. Absolutely. It's frightening. It's frightening. Here's a territory. Go go for it. We'll give you some. We'll give you some analytics if we can get it. Wars are won in the planning. Got you it. happen to execute the plan on the battlefield, but got if it. you're not doing the planning, you are derelict in your duty. You and it. managers who allow that to happen, they need to be hauled, keel hauled. Marcus, they're all doing it. Let's deal with that. So one of the things we do is we challenge the segmentation because if I can put my hand on my heart, right, transparency of intent. And I can help an organization only cover those organizations that they believe they have a high propensity to win, then we have some relevance. So we start there. And then from there, we have a whole series of techniques that are respectful. You know, this thing about interrupting people to gain their attention is over, okay? Getting on the phone and just calling and trying to cold call is over, particularly in the the B2B space. Okay, so there are many different ways you need to work through to get permission to have a conversation with the person. Now, once you've got permission to have a conversation and you've agreed on agenda of the topics, then it's not two or three minutes of conversation. You've got 30 minutes with that person. And if you've got 30 minutes with that person and you know it's the right company and you found the right contacts and you've done your job properly and you've, and you've created the right messaging, which is based on the, the user's requirements rather than your needs to sell, then you come in sharing knowledge they don't have that improve their business position. And if you have that checklist before you actually start the conversations, you're going to start to have some very powerful conversation where you add value through education and you haven't spoken about your business yet. That's how it all starts. What's really interesting is 
I view this as a bit like being Jeeves in Jeeves and Wooster. You need to have a service mentality. And uh, I spoke to Stephen Covey years ago, and he said something to me that was very profound. And it was the greatest among us serve the most. I don't believe you can overshare enough quality information with your audience. I think in our world within Sander, we're always taught no free consulting. But there's a massive difference between sharing insight to the practicality of how do you fix the problem. And it's also really important that you understand the fundamentals that people never argue with their own data. And that's why I think a Socratic approach is really powerful as well. Because if you ask the right kind of questions and you help deliver insight through your questioning, that's what stands you apart from everybody else. Your average salesperson will ask questions to gather information. Now, if you've managed to get in front of someone senior within an organization, what on God's earth are you doing? Gathering housekeeping information that you could have picked up off the internet. And then the better salespeople will be asking questions to gain understanding. Well, if you haven't done your research and you don't already understand, then chances are your conversion rates are low. You have long sales cycles. You get shunted into Siberia. You need to have the information. You need to have understanding. So when you're asking questions, they are delivering insight. It's like an uppercut, and you're ripping the scales from your prospect's eyes. You don't need a lot of questions. Probably in an hour, maybe 12, 8 to 12, really good, juicy, deeply uncomfortable, challenging questions that make them say, shit, I've never seen it that way. Or, wow, 35 years in this industry? That's so bloody obvious. How could I have missed it? But again, because most of them have their nose stuck up against the map, they don't see the bigger picture. My pal Sam Sethi, when he was in Sandhurst, his CO, his commanding officer, told him to stand with his nose up against the map. Said, Sam, now you're a private. Take one step back. Now you're a corporal. One step back, you're a sergeant. All the way back until his back was against the other wall. Now you're a general. And we need, as salespeople, I believe, If we're going to be playing in the big leagues, if we're going to be playing in the enterprise space, if we're working with complex deals, and bear in mind, now the research is suggesting that 9.2 decision makers are involved in a typical enterprise deal. If you are not working the entire gamut of the organization, then chances are there will be some black knight in there uh, who will pull the plug or someone who is vying for the same budget who will find a way to destabilize and derail your, your approach. And I think one of the most important things about authenticity is that your contacts will open up and they will tell you where there are obstacles internally. They will tell you when the competition is fishing around. So building on that, in terms of developing the trusted relationship, mapping the organization, mapping their marketplace, segmenting, what else do people need to do in order to play at the top of their game? Yeah, I I think they need to sing from the same hymn book. One one of the problems we see when I was at IBM, you know, whatever the the numbers were, 1,000 reps, et cetera, et cetera. The thing that used to make me really uncomfortable, Marcus, is until it was a sales qualified opportunity, I had no idea what the reps were doing, what were the conversations they were having, what was the intel they were getting, what, how were they positioning the, the promise, et cetera, et cetera. 
Okay. Most of them were sandbagging, probably. Absolutely. And and then you know what happens when you're uncomfortable, you start to lie, right? So it's 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 sort of human nature. But if you take that approach, you say, you you know what, we want to go back to authenticity, transparency of intent. You know, I'm gonna keep saying that. That's really important. So you gotta take a step back and you gotta look at it as an organization and go for this persona in this industry. What are the market needs? What are the USBs? What are the solutions? What are the clients' success stories? What do the competitors look like? How are we better? How are they better? What's the education? And we have a messaging board based on the needs of the market, not the needs of us. And that messaging board and all the qualification questions that 10 or 12 of you talk about become consistent no matter who is talking to the customer. And when you have that in play and you actually share that with every person that talks to the customer, then you've got consistency of the, of the questions and the promise to the customer. And what happens, mate? It's quick time to fail, quick time to win. Because if that's your best shot and the customer still says, no, get out. But you'll find that because we're being authentic about the message and the story based on the needs of the people we're talking to, a lot of the times you, you, the customers want you in to talk to them further because you are able to hit their points. This then raises yet another question because. In my experience, salespeople who are needy and desperate typically have a weak or empty pipeline. Now, obviously, if their company isn't filling their funnel, then they have to. But again, I think they have to be asking for referrals. They have to be having conversations with people about, well, who else in your organization is being affected by this? So that when they do finally get in front of the decision-making committee for that final presentation, they actually qualify. And so rarely does that happen before the salesperson can't wait to get their market stall out and say, onions, onions. They can't wait to try and pitch. One of the worst indicators is where we're being brought in because the founder or the owner or the CEO or the sales director wants us to improve salesperson's presentation skills. I teach what we call the fulfillment step which is the presentation phase of the sales cycle. Once you've built a contract, having done the diagnosis, pain and payoff, budget, which is not just about money. Budget involves resources, access, financials, time and timings, and the decision-making process, not just who's involved, but what process they have to go through, what criteria have to be met. When you've done all of that, and you've done that thoroughly, and you've confirmed with each of the individual parties that they will buy subject to you doing a presentation that confirms all of their personal requirements that matter to them as individuals, as well as the overall business, then you present. So I teach that maybe once or twice a year, the fulfillment bit. Because if you haven't done the other stuff, the presentation is largely irrelevant. That's basically doing dick pics, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. And I call it roadmap to yes, right? Very early on in any, I hate the word qualification, right? But early on in any situation where you're trying to judge where you can actually assist better than anyone else, because again, it's authenticity. If I'm going to be engaging in, in, in a deal that I know the competitors are better, I'll pull out. But roadmap to yes basically means what are all the steps, Mr. Customer, that you need to go through before you're able to make a final decision? And they're actually different by customer, depending on what you're selling. And sometimes they're not only different by customer, they're different by person within the sales cycle. So if there's nine people, you could have 10, nine different roadmaps. 
You've got to get that out early because then you can keep the whole transaction accountable for once we do this, we're going to do that, once we do this, we're going to do that, and you can find out where it stalls and you get permission to go back and try to facilitate the stall. Now, that is not selling. That's facilitating a roadmap to yes. And the one thing that we all have that we need to respect is time. I don't want to waste anyone's time in a transaction. I don't want people to waste my time in a transaction. Absolutely. So we bring that up very, very early when we're talking to people so that we understand, yes, we can give you value. Do you need this type of value? If you don't, that's okay. We'll move on. If you do, then let's build a relationship. And what happens, Marcus, is you build these communities of potential. We call them nascent trust, where they're like-minded, it's synergy-based. You know, we're all humans at the end of the day. And we've got to let down our guard and we've got to be fair to them in the way we communicate. We need a process of communication that's authentic based on the needs of both parties. We sign up to the process and away we go. And the outcome is usually a positive outcome. Again, this raises a number of really important points which I want to reiterate. First of all, it has to be a win for the customer and it has to be a win for you and your organisation. If it's not, it's incumbent on you as a seller to withdraw. And it's a huge mistake to keep pursuing an opportunity on the basis of hope that somehow things will change. Hope is an utterly shitty strategy. Hope is for amateurs. Selling is a science. It is not an art. There's 10% artistry whilst you're in the process. And that's down to your creativity in terms of how you respond to how the prospect responds to your questions. It's not something that can't be planned for. You can plan for virtually every eventuality. In my experience, I've been selling now for 34, 35 years, and I have yet to come across a prospect who comes up with an original objection. It just doesn't happen. And in every business, every industry, there's somewhere between 15 and 30, but typically it's nearer the 15. That just requires you to sit down and work out What causes the prospect to object in that way? And invariably, it's us. Prospects object because we take them there. Now, what can we do to mitigate against that? Well, we can raise an objection ourselves, or we can avoid creating those triggers that are unnecessary because of our lack of transparency, because we're self-serving, or because we're exaggerating. And nobody really wants to be sat in front of a traditional salesperson because they are objectionable. They aren't very good and they are largely a waste of time. And we have to get out of that. I I have a firm view that sales is a massive force for good if it's done well. Now, this comes back to the fundamental, which is the speed of the leader determines the speed of the group. In my experience, a fantastic manager can turn an average sales team into something that is just magical to experience and to observe. A bad manager can turn a team of superstars into average or worse in the blink of an eye. So I'd like to take a step back and look at what does authentic management look like? Very good, very good. So authentic management to me is measuring all the important bits, okay? We basically behave based on how we're going to be measured. So the way we measure success with our clients is what we call a balanced scorecard. 
Okay. So, you know, we deliver pipeline with trusted relationships. When you've got pipeline trust relationships, you close more deals in less time. It's, it's quite basic. It's quite obvious more than basic, I should say. But what does that mean from the point of view of activity? And what does the activity give you as far as deliverable? So we need to make sure we sign up to pipeline. Okay. So that's really important to us. We need to make sure we sign up to future pipeline. So not only are we going to create pipeline for our clients now, I don't want to be seen to screwing up the rest of the market because I'm coercive in trying to create the pipe. So I need to show our customers that there's future pipe coming by month, by category. We need to measure based on what it is we're learning from the people that are giving us information, the market research that gives us the insights, that gives the peer-to-peer benchmarking. So we need to show our customers that we're also getting the research and we're learning from the research. We need to measure what we call areas of interest. What are they interested in? Because if we keep talking about what we're interested in, the relationship starts to fall over. We need to start to measure what we call permission to educate. What do they want to be educated on and so forth? So the balanced scorecard is about making sure we provide not only pipeline for our customer, but we're showing how we can strategically manage the rest of the market and create an ongoing market for our customer quarter in, quarter out. And when you've got a pipeline that measures the revenue that needs to be generated, the pipeline doesn't fluctuate. So authentic authentic management, it's about making sure that you give your staff the metrics across all their actions that drive success rather than just one action and they do everything else in between. So to build on that, the only thing you can control is behaviour. The only thing you can manage is behaviour. So it's about measuring behaviour consistently and making sure that you're focused on the leading indicators, not the lagging indicators. And one of the things that really pisses me off is where managers say, oh, managing the numbers. You cannot manage the numbers. Numbers are a byproduct of the behavior that's gone before. And the behavior that's gone before should be a byproduct of the cookbook, which is daily behaviors that you're expecting your salespeople to do every day, every week, every month, every quarter, every year. And I've interviewed Chris Dannon, who was the torchbearer or is the torchbearer for Zig Ziglar. He was his right-hand man for 30 years. And he talks about prospecting for five years into the future. Now, what he's thinking there is, where is my market moving? Where are the people that I'm looking to serve, aiming to take their business? What are they attempting to do? What are the obstacles that they're facing? How can I be part of that conversation? And so rarely are salespeople strategically valuable advisors. What they should be is helping the CEO and the board work out where they are headed and facilitate that. And if it's not us, even bring in our fiercest competitor because they are better suited to help them. I do a lot of work within technology and uh, I have managed service provider clients. And every business that I know of is an IT business. We've all become IT businesses. 60% of managers' time on typically is spent on an average day on IT. So why is it that MSPs are not having those conversations and allying themselves with the board instead of being stuck in the IT department, which is the last place they should be? They should be speaking to the line of business. They need to be speaking to the line of business about where they're headed over the next three to five years so that they can help them map out a roadmap of exactly how the business is going to scale. 
and what kind of technologies that will be current at the time are going to be required so that they can plan ahead. Because what you don't want is your customers be reactive and trying to fill a gap. You want them to plan ahead so the gap never occurs. You don't want to be backfilling. So this then comes back down to, and again, management and leadership, where you're planning the business you're going to become in two years, three years, four years, five years. You're setting us along that roadmap clear milestones when you're going to establish a new hire. In order to do that, you already have to have a budget in place. So those triggers need to be put in place. And my experience is that very few companies bother to put that forethought in because what they're doing is they're reacting to the day-to-day. And I like to describe most senior management as a chief fire officer and head arsonist. They're putting fires out and setting a new one, putting fires out and setting a new one. Lack of transparency in the organization. Uh, An avoidance of conflict is another major problem. Because if you're not transparent, that translates as it trickles down into the organization into politics and mismatched expectations. So you punish people for not meeting the expectation you weren't clear about, duh, and you don't encourage conflict. Now, conflict is fantastically powerful. I think we should fight with our customers. I think we should argue with them. And through that debate, adult to adult, we end up with a much better solution. This is why diversity is such a critical issue. And again, you see so many managers recruiting in their own image, only weaker. If you're a fat, bald, middle-aged white man, chances are you're going to recruit more fat, bald, middle-aged white men in your team. That's a really stupid thing to do because they have the same perspective. So you end up in an echo chamber. So again, I'm really curious how you work with your clients to help them see that. It's about disruptive thought, okay? So just some of the key metrics that I rolled out at the beginning of our our session today. Are you comfortable that your sellers are only spending a quarter of their time selling? I've never really thought about it, but shit, they do, don't they? No, it's because they're busy doing other things. So they can substantiate why it's a problem. Therefore, I'll leave the problem alone. And then, well, hang on a second. If we could find a way where they don't have to do that, would you be interested? So you go from there. You know, this whole thing about um, thinking in advance and helping organisations think two years out, they don't do it because a lot of these organisations are quarter to quarter. They've got to make their money every quarter. There's no one responsible per se. You know, even the big companies like the IBMs of the world, you know, there were strategy teams. And the strategy teams, and it's not just IBM, it's all globals. The strategy teams would be looking at Horizon 3, Horizon 4, Horizon 2. And based on those horizons, they come up with some points of what we need to be talking about. And they come to the field and they go, yeah, that's great, thank you, but I've got to make my number. And nothing changes. You can't, the reps can't afford to be talking Horizon 2 onwards. And that's why, again, I go back to this authentic relationship management. If there is a way in which there is a cost model that's affordable by organisations where you can actually cover the marketplace that aren't yet ready to buy one, two, three years out, and you get permission to educate these people about what they should be thinking about, disruptive thoughts, about doubling your selling time, improving your win rates, I mean, help. Marcus, win rates are one in three, one in five. That's at final stage. Correct. That's not, that's not pursuits they start because that's <laughs> one in 12 to one in 20. 
It's a failed science and we're not addressing it. Why? Because we're too busy. So these are the thought sort of things. So the model that we take, and with this is 14 years in the game, the model we take into the marketplace, and it's not about selling it, it's about the industry needs to do this. It's a concierge consulting practice that says, I can afford to build a relationship with you, Mr. Potential Customer. I want to take you through some disruptive thoughts that is coming ahead, whether you see it or not at the moment, and I want to take you through some possibilities of what you may want to consider so that by the time it becomes more obvious to you, I can help you with the board and build a business case, and you can take that business case out to the marketplace and tender it, and then you can go out and see who can actually help you, but at least I've offered that service to you and allow me a position on that transaction with you. That is the breakthrough. And that's one of the things that I think most companies should do. I think there's a challenge here, which is that you need brave leadership, leadership that's willing to take that risk. And I'm not sure whether we're in agreement at this stage. So again, push back if you disagree. But I think the vision of the CEO has to be one that we're playing the long game and that we're going to encourage our salespeople to have those conversations and to create the peer-to-peer dialogue so that this, the salesperson is always captain of the sale. And there is only one captain. Yes. Where you have yes. two captains, so they bring in their CEO and the CEO then takes over control, then that undermines the salesperson. So the salesperson is the general in the field deciding which resource has which conversations with which people in the right way at the right time. And so everybody else is crew, CEO, CFO, chief marketing officer, whoever, and especially the technical salesperson. Because one of the things I see happen an awful lot is the salesperson goes in, they haven't got proper control over their sales engineer who just cannot wait to spill their guts to prove how clever they are. And you know, loose lips sink ships. And if the salesperson hasn't agreed up front, one technique we teach is called the I baton technique. So if you're the prospect and you ask me, the sales engineer, a question, before I respond, I turn my head and I look at the salesperson. And the salesperson either chooses to reverse and ask a question about motive, cause, or intent to establish exactly why the prospect is asking that question at this particular moment. Because if you don't understand motive, cause, and intent, it's very easy to paint yourself into a box. But if the salesperson gives the the sales engineer permission, there are three rules in terms of how they respond. The first is it must do you no harm. So if you give stuff away, that essentially means that there's a tick box in their head that says, I don't need you, I know the answer to that, then that's a problem. It must be as short as possible. Because when a sales engineer just waxes lyrical, they're guaranteed to dig themselves into a hole, hit bedrock and keep digging. And then the third thing is it must end on a question because he who asks the question controls the conversation. So what I'm seeing very often is, first of all, that the salesperson abdicates control of the sale, either because they are deferring to authority or they're deferring to the subject matter expert instead of controlling the sale. And that takes them away from the authentic intent, which is to serve. Because if all they're doing is they're just letting other people do the job, 
then I think they're giving up control. They're giving away their power. And sales is tough enough. We don't need to then create internal competition for mind space. And we don't need to defer our power or to give away our power so that all of a sudden we become irrelevant because we have to maintain that relationship over time. What are you training your clients to do to make sure that they maintain that control without being authoritarian, but they're managing that process to ensure that the velocity of the sale continues? Because I think there are three major metrics that matter. The first one is daily unique effective conversations with prospects. If you're not speaking to prospects on a regular basis, then frankly, you're toast. The second is velocity. And very often what we see is um, a salesperson's pipeline either bulges at the top and looks like Dolly Parton or ends up bulging at the bottom and looking like some kind of And it's constipated. And so stuff doesn't move forward. And the third is making sure that there are enough opportunities moving from qualified to closable. Now, I know you don't like the term qualified. So I'm curious, what can management do to ensure that the salesperson maintains control without becoming authoritarian, and keeps that velocity going so that they're always advancing the sale rather than just spinning their wheels. Yeah, I think it goes back to a point I made a little bit earlier, Marcus. Define the roadmap to yes. At the end of the day, if you're selling stuff, whether it's services, solutions, product, applications, it doesn't matter. People go through a process before they make a decision. And if you define the different roadmaps or the roadmap to yes, And by step, you work out who is going to be the best person or people to share that knowledge and to ask those questions. Then you've got a process for people to follow of which the salesperson that you call captain is the facilitator. The issue we've got is every sales process is different depending on the rep and depending on the manager and depending on the product guy that's pushing the product, et cetera. It's a a mess. It's like minestrone soup. So we're leaving it up to the charisma of the uh, of this, the, the salesperson, all the organisational skills of the salesperson to actually manage. And the really good ones are almost like generals and they're, they're process-driven. The not-so-good ones are all over the place. So we'd help them to find the process to yes, the roadmap to yes, and per step, that's why the concierge process that we put in place, which is ahead of the transaction, is so important. And then from that, as we start to educate them, it's it's controlled education. We know the problem statement. We know the education. We know the problem statement. We know the education. We know the problem statement. We're ready now. We pass it over. The rep now has it. He knows when to bring pre-sales in, when to bring customer service in, when to bring referrals in, when to ask for the PO. And if you have that quantified, then you're allowing people to be natural through the process of everybody's doing the best bit based on the education they have, so it's authentic and the sellers become the the master administrators or the facilitators. I think you've touched on something else as well. I've said it many times in the podcast, but it's worth repeating, which is that not only do you have to plan, but you have to rehearse. And role play is a fundamental part of management and sales. If you are not practicing, you should not be practicing in front of your prospect. You should not be winging it in front of your prospect. You should have rehearsed every nuance. On the odd occasion where something happens that you haven't planned for, all that planning and rehearsal means that you have the breathing space because you know that you don't have to panic. You simply know that you need to clarify 
motive, cause, and intent behind their question. And then you work your process. But most salespeople wing it. Most organizations wing it. They don't have a common language. They don't have a common sales process. When people deviate from the sales process, it's treated, well, let them be creative. The process should allow all the creativity any salesperson ever needs within it, within the framework. And where very often it goes wrong is uh, sales managers tend to be very prescriptive and they uh, use scripts. I'm not a fan of scripting. At all. It's awful. You need a framework and you need guide rails so that you understand what you can do within the bounds of those uh, guidelines. But very rarely do people put in the requisite amount of time. When you consider the cost of getting in front of an ideal prospect and the number of leads organizations and individuals are burning through, it makes no sense not to put in two, three, four hours of rehearsal for every hour you're going to be in front of the prospect. Because otherwise it means someone has to spend four days on the phone to try and orchestrate one of these bad meetings. And you have to burn through five of those in order to get through to the second meeting because 83% don't. So you could easily invest 20 man days in prospecting. Uh, Why would you not put in three or four hours of rehearsal? I completely agree. Look, you know, I look at it like a uh, a top-class tennis player or a football player or whatever, right, These, these athletes of life. Even though they're the best at what they do, when they're not on the game playing, they're practicing. They're looking for the next edge. They're repeating this, this, and that. And therefore, that they're always ahead of the curve. So the practice is important. The practice cannot be script-based. The practice is all about understanding what's in the heart and in the mind of the person you're trying to work with and seeing what else you can do that's going to give them the value that they can't get better than anyone else. And if you keep that always at the center of your day, You're always looking for breakthroughs to help the customer better than anyone else. And if that's the DNA of a salesperson, you've got a roadmap to success, then you've got top talent getting better every day, practicing what they know, looking for more edges, and you're not burning all the leads that we continue to burn. I mean, it's an asset. It's it's, it's disgraceful. I think it's a firing offence. I agree. We've had situations, Marcus, right, and and I'm very fierce on this with our clients, where because to me, when we provide qualified opportunities with trusted relationships, these are real and it's money. And the customer spent money for us to get that for them. We've provided a full diagnostics report. And sometimes when we've, you know, when we've um, followed a CEO for two years and he's given us permission or she's given us permission to educate them over the time, we've got two years worth of diagnostics research on that person for that company and whoever else in that company. When we pass it over to the rep, we have a a closed-loop lead management handover. So our guys are buddies to their guys, and our guys are in their 60s and 70s and 50s. So these are senior sellers that are in my practice, right? When we pass it over to the rep, we organise a lead handover process, soft lead handover process. We go through the entire diagnostics lead report, and then we pass it over, and then we follow up within a couple of weeks to make sure that they've qualified, the wrong word, but you know, they've got them in and they've, they've had the meeting where it's at. So it's all closed loop. We've had situations where the rep doesn't even do the, the handover, just go straight in and go, so how can I help you? Imagine what does to the person that we've just spent two bloody years building a relationship for on behalf of our brands. I'll, I'll just pick up the phone. I'll talk to the CEO of the company and say, listen, this is what's going on. We need it sorted. 
And obviously the CEO is not very happy about it and we, and we get it. But it still happens today, Marcus. It still happens today. Got to say it doesn't surprise me. I have a real issue with calling sales a profession. It should be, but it isn't. Because most of the people who end up in sales do so by default rather than design. It's not intentional. They fall into it. And we, I guess most of us have. But those personal standards, that desire to improve, that investment in self, I can't think of a working day in the last 35 years where I haven't put in anywhere between one and six hours of study, where I'm practicing, I'm learning, I read prolifically, I'm following great influences within the space, I'm challenging them. I don't always agree. In fact, very often we fight. But I'm never afraid to ask a question, no matter how dumb, in order to improve. And I think salespeople really need to buck up their ideas. Managers need to buck up their ideas when it comes to recruitment and where they spend their time. You know, coaching, what on God's earth are managers doing where they proudly say that they don't coach their people? Idiot, absolute cretinism. They're not holding themselves to account for the time that they're spending in recruiting up. Every time someone leaves, there should be an exit interview. You should work out why they're leaving. Because if you've got someone who's talented, why on God's earth would they want to leave? If your compensation is right, if you're not managing them poorly, if you're coaching and developing them. And so what I struggle with time and again, and it's frustrating because we are, we have the makings of a fabulous profession. A genuinely fabulous profession. It's a wonderful career. It's been blissfully uh, generous to me. And I see that potential for other people. But it's being squandered through laziness, through apathy, through fear, through ignorance, and primarily through ego. So what message would you send to leaders about the value they place on really powerful sales leadership, sales management, and salespeople. To start with the profession, if you look at it, you know you don't go to university after you leave school and you do a six-year PhD in selling. There's no real structure. And then obviously, it's after you get in that you've got all these wonderful training programs. I think the first thing all sales leaders need is a mentor that can help them where they have gaps. Just having a mentor system across the profession, I think, is very, very important. I think, I think the second thing is no one's really investing that much money on their sellers. You know, you go, go to your kickoffs in Las Vegas or wherever it is that we all go. We spend three days listening to some vision stuff and some, you know, product training stuff, and we drink heavily and we act like we're back to the good old days when we were young and we go home with a, with a hangover and we try to act like we've learned something and we spend $250,000 from the exercise. Why don't we spend $250,000 a year and give every rep $5,000 each and agree a strategy for sales training and allow these reps to do the training, get tested and see how that's actually adding value to the organisation? And why don't these leaders have mentors and they do the same thing coaching? I'm just about to release a senior leadership team three-day retreat on high performance and meaningful living because the amount of leaders, they're getting old, they're tired, they're battered, but they're still in the industry. We need to rejuvenate the entire industry with mentoring, with coaching and with training. 
Well, interestingly enough, I interviewed Dr. Jeff McGee a couple of days ago, and that was really fascinating because he has a view that the chief learning officer should be spending 80% of their time coaching and developing the C-suite and the top level of leadership and management. That's their full-time job. It's coaching and developing those guys, making sure that they're getting regular coaching, regular training, because that actually trickles down through the organization. It becomes part of the culture, part of the DNA, and their decisions are improved, where this diverse team gets together, they fight, they argue, they disagree, and then they come up with solutions. Their challenge, their thinking is pushed and stretched, and it doesn't happen. It's heartrending. Well, it is because people are busy being busy failing. Let's face it. You can look at all the, the various activities that we do during a day, okay? And if you put your hand on your heart, unless you, 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 you've got this mindset that everything you do, you're trying to do better today than it was yesterday, and that's not a lot of people. Most people are in positions that they sort of just get into and they become good at it, but they never become great at it, right? So, so you've got this situation. We're working with average and we're getting busy. And if we're too busy, then we haven't got time for education, training, and mentoring, and practice. And that needs to change. But all that stuff has to be with the mindset of the person you're serving at the center of your heart. Because then what you're doing is you're making sure that everything you're learning is to add more value to the market rather than just to yourself. Could not agree more. John, we're coming to the top of the hour and I'm conscious that you're busy. Tell me, what are you reading, listening to, watching that's really influencing you at the moment? That's a good question. Look, I do a lot of reading to do with emotional intelligence, authenticity and positive thoughts. As I said, I'm a martial arts teacher of 38 years. And if we're able to connect positively with people, if we're able to always have an intent to add value and be good rather than just take, and if we're able to always just be honest with our, with our approach in life, then I think relationships, businesses, outcomes are always going to be the right ones for all. So a lot of my books are around, you know, Dr. Joe Dispenza and Dr. Bruce Lipton and, and a lot of those guys that are moving from science to, to metaphysics. And I think that's a beautiful part of um, my progress in life. And as I bring that into, you know, conversations with you and conversations with, with the lead executives, I'm hoping that'll create goodness and share goodness for the marketplace. I really love Bruce Lipton's work, The Biology of Emotion and Belief. And Lipton has a, a belief that the brain and the gut are intrinsically linked. And in fact, evolutionarily, it's very likely that the brain evolved out of the gut. And so one of the things that we teach is always trust your gut. And your gut is a decision-making muscle. And the science is catching up, which is really interesting because if you learn how to trust your gut and then you calibrate what you feel before you go into making the decision and afterwards, and you also calibrate the result, then you start to get more intuitive in terms of what your gut is telling you. And the best decision-makers I know are they're driven by that gut feel. They use logic, but they can quite happily work with only 30% of the information available to them, which means that they can make quicker decisions. And because they've trained themselves to become good at decision-making, then they always have that slight edge. And you only need the compound interest, essentially means that you build on what you've already invested and you keep reinvesting it and so on. 
Now, if you get better and better at making decisions, all of those decisions add up to a very, very sharp sword instead of the usual bludgeon that people use for making decisions. They're afraid to make decisions because they don't have all the information. And that's often a byproduct of childhood and shaming, uh, interestingly enough. Brene Brown's work around perfectionism is really worth exploring. If you haven't come across it, it's definitely worth it. Because when people are shamed as children, they don't want to be shamed again. So they wait and wait and wait until they have everything, uh, which means that they generally miss virtually every opportunity. And the last 2% is not worth the 80% of additional effort. Excellent is perfectly fine. So if you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot John, age 23, who knew everything and was uh, immortal and invincible, what would you advise him? Yeah, listen more and talk less. <laughs> and, find, and find a lot of great mentors around all the areas that are important to me in life. You know, it depends on the type of person you are. I spend a lot of time. I left home the day I left school and, and sort of went to uni and all that sort of stuff when I could. But uh, I spent a lot of time just discovering all the failures rather than working with a lot of mentors to um, get me quicker to the successes that we all want to achieve. So I would say read a lot. I would say find the mentors and I would say just try to be true to who you are so you can work out what's right for you, what's wrong for you. Something that's worked really well for some of my younger clients I tell them to go on LinkedIn and find people whose history is their future and then ask for help. Ask them to be their mentor for 20 minutes a month. And what's really interesting is people will happily do that. Not everyone. And you're going to have to be, you know, accept that there will be rejection. And also you have to be certain that you're not wasting their time. So put a couple of hours of good study and preparation in beforehand. So that 20 minutes is answering the one question that you need help with. And don't be afraid to ask for help. Asking for help is being vulnerable. And vulnerability, the word vulnerable comes from the Latin word vulnerabilis. And what it means is to make yourself woundable, put yourself in harm's way and do it anyway. It's an act of courage. It's not a personality defect. It's not a deficiency. And so the advice I would give is don't be afraid to look like a fool by asking the most naive questions and ask for help. So what are you struggling with at the moment? Uh, I'm struggling with world peace, mate. You know, <laughs> when, you look, when you look at what's going on in our world, we're going the wrong way. Fear and greed is taking us down the wrong path. And we don't need it. We make the rules. And I go back to my point, if we spend time building relationships with people before we need to actually engage and, and invest in them, then what you find is you find a whole ecosystem of trusted relationships across communities. And if everybody did that, we're going to have a much better world. We have enough for everybody. We make the rules. So I think scaling my information, scaling, you know, the authenticity of trust, scaling that we have to invest in relationships and give before we take, I think is probably my biggest challenge at the moment to get it out to the people so they can make their own judgment of it. That's interesting. One of my mentors, Mark Goulston, the author of Just Listen. Have you read it? No, I have not. Fabulous book. It's, it's a must read. If, you, if you're part of the species, you have to read and then apply uh, what's uh, in the book. But Mark says all human beings want to be heard, feel felt and be understood. And 
It's really important. He's a psychiatrist who now specializes in suicide prevention. And he's a wonderful, generous, kind man. If anyone is out there and you want a fabulous speaker who will literally change your world, then please go to Mark Galston because most of the work he does is pro bono in suicide prevention in teens. And he's a fabulous man on a, a worthy quest. But what's really interesting about that is that listening is a a full body experience. It's something that you throw yourself into. A a pal of mine, Ron Voparais, came up with a lovely concept, which is attention is a currency. You pay attention. And very few people really pay good attention. They're always looking over your shoulder. um, They're thinking about what's coming next. They're trying to think about their next question. And what Mark Goulston teaches is that you slow right down. Once the other person has stopped talking, stay silent. Think about what they're saying and they've said. Very often, the other person will carry on talking. And the best conversations are the ones where you say very little other than asking really good questions. And at the end of it, the number of times I've had people say to me, you know, Marcus, I've been working with my business partner for 16 years. He doesn't even know that about me. Or I've never even told my wife. Or this was a really fascinating conversation. And I've given nothing. What I've done is I've paid attention and I've listened. And that was a hugely transformatory moment in my life when I came across that book and started to really understand that. And to take your point about world peace a little bit further, I think one of the problems that we have is that there isn't enough good opposition to the people who are in control. I firmly believe that no government is a good government unless they have a strong opposition, because what they'll tend to believe is their echo chamber. We're seeing it here. We're seeing it in the States. We're seeing it in Hungary, across all of Europe, where these populist movements have risen up and people are afraid to challenge them because if they do challenge them, they just get pilloried or big dark money ends up ruining their careers. The newspapers tear them down. And I think what's really required at a grassroots level is a fundamental belief that we should be opposing and challenging the received wisdom, which is around populism. Because without that, then they'll just carry on riding roughshod and they'll take their views to the extreme. I downloaded yesterday Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, not because I'm interested necessarily in the content, but I want to understand how the far right are thinking. And I subscribe to people's views who I abhor. If I can't hold both opposing views in my head at the same time, then I don't think that I'm doing them or me or anybody else any justice. So any parting thoughts to share with the audience? Because this has been a fascinating conversation. I'd love to do it again. Thank you. I would too. Look, uh, my my parting message really is role model. Just role model what's inside your mind, what's inside your heart. Have the courage to be you. We're all born good and we all take our last breath good. It's just we sort of lose it somewhere in between because of money and ego and marketing and everything else that goes on. If we just take a backward step and just try to really learn who we are, what we stand for as a person value-wise, and bring out the good inside us and just role model that goodness, we've done that a little bit. So if we can't afford to, if we just don't have the, the power or the, or, or the intent to go and stand up against you know, the forces that are, 
but we have the intent to, to role model goodness, it comes back at you. If I'm nice to you, you're nice. But if I smile, I smile. If I push, you're going to push me. So the parting message is just role model your goodness and what will happen is others will be good as well and we'll have a better world for everybody where everybody makes money and we feed our kids and we have a good time. That's a beautiful thought to end on. Thank John Bedwani, thank you so much. Real pleasure. How can people get hold of you? They can catch me on LinkedIn, John Bedwani, uh, or our website, www.dbdept.com.au. Brilliant. Thank you. So this is Marcus Cowkey signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you'd like to be a guest or there's somebody you would really like me to interview for the Inquisitor podcast, please get in touch either through direct message on LinkedIn or email me at mcauchi at sander.com. I'm happy selling. Bye-bye.